Welcome to the Rural Sales Show with my dad and host Sinjin Craner. Each week, my dad interviews people who you can learn from like sales and marketing experts, authors and performance coaches to help you and your rural sales team get to the next level. Oh, and make sure you subscribe or rate us on iTunes so you can buy me a motorbike. And now here's my dad. Listeners, 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 we have a treat for you this week. A man, a very clever man by the name of Jonathan Stark. If you're not following him, you should. Jonathan is based in the US. He is a pricing coach, which probably does him a huge disservice to describe him as that. But I got him on the show. Uh, Jonathan's coached me over the years on and off, done a few of his programs, follow two of his podcasts, receive his daily emails. Yes, guys, daily emails. Um, And I got him on the show to talk about um, positioning, publishing, pricing. We talk as it relates to rural around the difficulty in selling commodity products or the perception or belief that you have a commodity product. And Jonathan absolutely slays that and challenges that. So I suggest you pin your ears back and listen. Uh, As always, like all our guests, he shares a ton. So I want you to take a ton of notes here about lead generation, positioning, pricing, uh, the cadence of your content, why creating content matters and the more contrarian, the better. Um, the, the problem with short-termism in selling and not looking for the longer lifetime value, uh, we talk about leading and lagging indicators. There's a ton in here, so I won't go any more. I'll leave it to you to listen, to learn, to take notes if you can. That's why I put this podcast together. So I won't talk anymore and we'll hand over to Jonathan. Enjoy this one. It's a goodie. Okay, we've got Jonathan Stark here on the show. And uh, rather than me prattle on and fluff a very, very good bio and introduction, I'm going to get Jonathan to uh, introduce himself. So Jonathan, do you want to say g'day to the listeners and maybe just start off, give them a bit of context about the superhuman being, Superman type guy you kind of are? (laughs) Sure. Thanks for that. Uh, yeah, my name is Jonathan Stark. I'm located in Providence, Rhode Island on the East Coast of the United States, kind of near Boston. And I am a former software developer on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. And I run a, uh, got a couple of podcasts. I'm sure we'll talk about those and a daily mailing list on pricing for independent professionals. Awesome. Succinct as always, Jonathan. I expect nothing less from you. Now, listeners, just to give you a bit of context, I... I came across Jonathan years ago, and I've been following a bit of a fanboy, I have to admit, and uh, you're one of these guys that emails every single day, and you're only one of a very handful of people who I read your emails uh, every day. And I know you did uh, you did a Seth Godin alternate MBA class. Can you talk to us about that? Because is that, is that where the emailing daily came from? Uh, close. Uh, close. I, I haven't done alt MBA, but I have done the marketing seminar. It was one of his akimbo workshops, um, to kind of study the structure of how he does online oh. education. And I absolutely loved it and copied that for, with his permission for some, mm-hmm. uh, workshops that I do. The daily emailing was also very Seth Godin related because I was on his list for, mm. for quite some time when I was still emailing weekly or sporadically at best. So I knew that it, it could work. I knew that it, I knew that I read him every day. I still read him every day. And so I knew that I, I believed that it worked, but I didn't, didn't think it was something that I would do. But then a, uh, a friend, maybe, you know, to Philip Morgan, yes, I uh, yes. he dragged me kicking and screaming into like, you know, you'd be perfect for this. This is, you're going to love it. It's going to be the best thing you ever do for your business. And, and I was like, oh, I had all these objections, but he kind of swatted them away and made me do it. And uh, it was, and he was right. It was the best single thing I've ever done for my business or any business that I've been in. It's great. Yeah, and we're going to unpack that more, John, because I'm super excited to have you on. Because I know we've been, I know you're a busy bloke. And we really, really appreciate you having it on. I mean, uh, Philip Morgan as well, a good buddy of yours. You know, we we might get some time to dive into positioning because that is uh, almost that's almost a podcast that justifies its own uh, yes. own talk because it's mm-hmm. so. You know, we know you know more than anything, and that's what you've taught me is that you know any pricing problem is usually correlated to a positioning problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that. So, um, Jonathan, 
on the show today, I, you know, on a preamble just before we prepped and came on on air is my listeners here are uh, rural business owners, sales managers, rural reps, and sometimes, uh, fairly or unfairly, they believe that they're selling a commodity. So they might be selling fuel, they might be selling fertilizer, they might be selling, and you're going to love this, they sell a yellow bag or a green bag or a blue bag of grass seed. And there is, you know, minimal difference. So I'm now it's 2.30 where you are, 8.30 in the morning where I am. So you're probably a bit more warmed up than me. Um, tell me about that sort of commodity mindset. To me, I'll be brave because I'm, I'm, I know we're going to have a really good chat about this is Sometimes I think that's a defeatist attitude. And, you know, if they can brand water, I think you can brand most things because I think if water is the most plentiful, well, context, right, you know, if you're in the desert, go be desert and you're thirsty, then, you know, that bottle of water is going to cost you a little bit more. But what I want to talk to you about is value-based pricing and maybe maybe in a long-winded way, could we start and talk around what do you define as value-based pricing or how would you describe it? How would you frame it up for the listeners. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to do that. And it's, you know, and I know probably my background sounds like it doesn't make sense that would translate into this kind of an audience, you know, software person, former hourly biller, your folks are not software people. They're not billing by the hour, but there are fundamental business um, principles that do apply here. For example, value pricing. And in, in a nutshell, the definition is kind of right in the name. It's setting a price based on value instead of what people, especially in the service industry, but I suppose also in a a product business, they would think to set their prices based on cost, Mm. right? And it it seems like a normal thing to do. It's like, oh, it cost me this much to get, I don't know, it cost me $100,000 to get my inventory. So I need to sell it for more than $100,000. So I'm going to pray, I'm going to just mark everything up 50% or mark everything up 100% or 20%, whatever I can get away with. Mm. And that's setting your prices based on your costs. Uh, but I think I was reading a years ago, reading um, a book by Ron Baker, who was probably <laughs> implementing value pricing, uh, where he said something that flipped on a light switch in my head that I knew was true once I read it, but I had never thought of it, which is that price can affect cost. So, so it, it's not necessary that cost has to be the thing that drives price. In fact, now it, it's it's actually, I feel stupid saying it now. It's so obvious that that's not true. But I remember it was a revelation when I first read that your price can affect your cost. So an example might be where if you set a price where you can move a, a ton of product, then you can get discounts from your manufacturers because you're buying in bulk. So yeah. if you set a price low, it can actually lower your costs. Conversely, if you set a price really high, you can create a better product and it might increase your costs or it could decrease your costs. Like the price gives you the revenue to work with that you would then drive into the business innovation and marketing, whatever it is that you do. Setting a higher price gives you more margin to play with and can. For another example would be like, oh, now we've got enough money to hire an operations person or an operations consultant to streamline our operations mm. because we have some actual profit and we're not just like running around trying to make payroll or pay that, you know, invoice for the those three colors of seed. Uh, and <laughs> I you knew can, you'd appreciate, I, I knew you'd appreciate that, you know, you know <laughs> yeah, literally good, good the farmers go, it's the yellow bag or the blue bag or the green bag. And I mean, I'm that I'm doing them a great disservice because there are proprietary seeds out there, but the generics, um, it does, it does play out like that. I can assure you, they go to their rural retail store and go, I want the blue bag. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so the, okay. So the, just to close up the definition, it's value pricing is setting prices based on value instead of cost, which is what most people think of. Yeah, hundred percent. Good. So we're going to unpack that a wee bit more. Um, for me, uh, you know, we've read the Alan Weiss, the Ron Bakers, David A. Bakers. I've got some of the pricing books down here as I look over my left shoulder, and I can see some of the evidence for you and your good friend Blair ends of where some of the grandfathering, or for want of better words, you know, good good quarry of um, insight from those earlier guys. So you guys sort of running that mantle now. Um, Here's another one for you, Jonathan, because we're going to get really into it. And I know you'll be up for the challenges. Um, when I train rural sales teams, um, 
I train them to get so good at handling or preventing objections, it becomes a game for them, a game they really enjoy, not one they fear, one they enjoy. So because you're a bit of a master at this, yeah. what's your how do you train and manage your your teams and your cohorts and people that subscribe and and are privileged to be trained by you when it comes to pricing objections? So the classic one is, hey, Jonathan, you are way, way too expensive. How do you handle that? Uh, I would say, okay. <laughs> it's not my client. <laughs> right? you, yeah, if I, yeah. I've already failed. In my opinion, I've already failed because yeah. if they if, – if they don't already know I'm the most expensive option, my marketing's not done. My marketing's I'm not just- working. So you want to set the you want to set yourself up as the prize. There there needs to be it can't just be snake oil. You need to actually be a prize. You actually be able be able to deliver results or positive outcomes, and be confident in the results that you can deliver, and be really clear about the the situations in which you're not a good fit. So if someone's a real strong price buyer, I'm not a good fit. Not yeah. just because they're cheap and I don't want to work with them, but because it it indicates the mentality that is probably probably going to exist in the engagement. Yes. If, if my fee seems um, like a real stretch for them, yeah, they're going to be nervous the whole time. They're going to be yeah. wanting to look for results too soon. They won't wait for the tomatoes, the seeds to grow. They're yeah. going to be like, where are my tomatoes? Where are my tomatoes? I need they're to gonna rip them out of the ground. They're going to rip them out of the ground. I planted them in the wrong place. I need to put them somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. And they're constantly thrashing. So it's, mm. it's, it's a, but you know, I'll give you a, a little bit, um, a common example in my space, even if your marketing is good and you are, it's well known that you're going to be a premium option. You do sometimes get a scenario where a buyer who perhaps has to justify the expenditure to like the CFO or someone else to get final yes. approval, they might say something like, look, help me out here. You're twice as much as the next quote that we got. What? And I want to work with you, but how am I going to justify this to the CFO or the mm, CEO or someone else? Yeah. And I would say, well, first of all, in a service business, it's pretty common that the other party is probably lowballing an hourly rate to get the gig. So I would say, well, first of all, is the other is the other firm who's saying the quote, is it actually a quote or is it an estimate? Mm. And if you, because mine's a quote, I'm willing to stand behind my price. It's, it's, fixed. it's, it's, it's fixed, fixed, right? Yes, it's mm. fixed. So if they're not willing to stand behind their price, then you have to ask yourself, like, are you willing to take that risk? Who would you rather, mm. who would you rather work with someone who is so confident in how this is going to go that they can give you a fixed price? Or would you rather go with someone who is not willing to stand behind their price? And it could end up being double and commonly in software space, it is double or more than that. Uh, so that would be one approach. But if someone was just legit, legitimately like, geez, I'd love to work with you, but I can't afford it. I would just say, like, I'd be happy to introduce you to someone more junior who would be a better fit. It's, I, I just don't fight that fight. I, in fact, in a sales interview, it might be, it, we'll have to get into the nuances between mm-hmm. product, a product business and a service business. Yes. But a product in a service business, when, uh, when you first meet and you're, it's probable that there's some kind of project, yes. you know, non-trivial collaborative, perhaps six month to, or longer uh, hmm. endeavor, hmm. then I try to, I have this thing I call the why conversation. If you're familiar with Alan Weiss, it's going to be very familiar hmm. uh, where I try to talk them out of working with me. I try to talk them out of doing the project and I uncover it's almost like they're trying to convince me that they should do the project. They should do it now and they should do it with me. And once I have that information, if they can convince me and I feel like I can contribute to their desired outcome, then I'll write a proposal. But if they can't convince me, then I wouldn't bother. And, you know, and that meant that, that perhaps I was, you know, let's say I got 10 leads in a given month and I talked to all 10 of them and I could talk five of them out of, of, uh, of working with me. Like they couldn't, they couldn't explain why this particular project was the the solution. Like why solve it like this? Why not solve it some other way? They couldn't explain to me why it was urgent to do right now. They couldn't explain to me why a cheaper option wasn't viable. Then I just wouldn't write a proposal. So now I didn't have to write a proposal for what would have surely been a bad gig anyway. Yeah. hundred percent. So now I've only written five proposals out of 10, but of those five, I'll close 90 or a hundred percent of them. So I'm writing fewer proposals, but my close rate probably doubles. Um, yeah. 
And, and I've avoided probably dodge some bullets in terms of like a really painful engagement where client wasn't really that engaged. Maybe the solution wasn't going to be that effective. And they, they were having doubts about going with a premium option when they could have maybe outsourced it to their cousin Vinny or hired someone offshore or, you know, from an emerging economy, just keep, just, just slap something together and we'll see if it works. I mean, that's a valid use case, but I just don't want to do that kind of work. Now listeners, if you, this guy is a really, really good at what he does. He's talked about the five whys and uh, Jonathan and I picked up on that big time as a bit of a sort of listeners learning notes and take out as you know, often you will say, why now? Why us? Why not a cheaper option? Why not do this in house? And why not do this later? So mm-hmm. what Jonathan's doing there is he's really qualifying the buyer to qualify and we'll sell it to themselves. Correct, Jonathan? Yes, but uh, yes, that's true. Um, ultimately, ultimately, what I'm trying to do is uncover what it might be worth to a client like this. Yes, good, good. So what? Are, um, there's a few things in here because we're barreling along and I just want to unpick it. Um, when someone says to me, when I train them, and I train rural sales teams on psychology and we get them better results and we can quantify that. We can even guarantee it if they do the work is they go, what's your price? And I say, and I hope you'll be very proud of me, Jonathan. I say, before we give you a price, so I can give you the right price. Can we work out what it's worth? So can we talk about commercial context? So context and qualification are two very big words, as is the other F word, which is not the curse word, is the fair word. But we'll get into that. So jo- what I want to pick up for listeners, because I, I always, always want to make sure they're learning heaps on here, and because you're an absolute gift to have on this on the show, is you've talked about the five whys. Can you share with the listeners, which I just thought was amazing, your three P's model, you know, the three P's that you talked about, mm-hmm. which help you with that pre-positioning so you are pre-qualifying prospects that are pre-sold almost, almost halfway home and convince themselves before mm-hmm. they even get on a call with you to get your services. And then what we might do is then relate that back to a service-based proposition in agriculture, which might be mm-hmm. agronomy, you know, mm-hmm. where you have a fee for service where you provide a farmer with agronomic services and help them with their spray programs and their pre-post-emergent sprays and all the rest of it. But mm-hmm. before we do that, could you unpack that 3P? Because I think it is amazing okay there's a lot of peas flying around so i hope we're thinking about the same ones three three is good because i can so, only handle three tennis balls <laughs> right so i assume what you're talking about is the sort of three main planets in my content solar system or you might think of them as pillars of business yes and for me the sun in my content solar system is ditching hourly so stop trading time for money your listeners probably aren't trading time for money anyway so that's they're already drunk the kool-aid there but the planets that revolve around that that apply to really any business that I can think of, certainly a product of business like these, um, are positioning, publishing, and pricing. Brilliant. Can you just say that again, Jonathan, for the listeners? Sure. Sure. The, the foundation of everything here is positioning. Without that, you're probably in trouble. Uh, so positioning is the first thing, which is strategic level marketing. We can, we can define each of these individually. Awesome. Publishing could be a book, but I don't necessarily mean it that way. I mean, taking your ideas, your insights, your expertise, and letting it, putting it out into the world, probably for free, but for a low price, you know, book isn't free, but it's, it's publishing. It's a low price. Yeah. It's like, yes, shipping your thought leadership. What are your contrarian viewpoints? What, what is your worldview? What drives you? what, What are the patterns of stupidity you see in your clients? As Philip Morgan would say, so, so what, what are the landmines that your clients are always stepping on? How can they, what, what are the frameworks that you use to solve common problems for your clients? Just like give that stuff all away for free or in a book form, it's practically free and, and do it as, as regularly and as generously as you possibly can. And we mentioned already, I do a daily mailing list. I have been since 2016. Uh, it's fabulous. I've done hundreds and hundreds, maybe over a thousand podcast episodes like this. So, you know, I just give it away. All the secrets. Here you go. Do it. If you can, if you can figure it out on your own, just from listening to this, I don't want to take your money. I don't need to take your money. So yeah. So that's the publishing circle or, or planet and pricing is the, the last one. So pricing for me, there's a, there's, there's a ton in each of these topics. Pricing for me breaks into a few categories you can tell me how much this applies to your audience and then we'll focus on the pieces that do value pricing is ideal when you are 
a recognized expert or an authority on something and you're doing project work. And I defined project previously already to be a non-trivial collaborative endeavor between you and the, the customer or the client. So it's not a, it's not a, a one week thing that has a very clear scope. It's, it's, there's going to be a lot of exploration. There's going to be a lot of back and forth conversation, brainstorming, execution, uh, iterative development. It's, it's, no one knows exactly how they're going to get there, but everybody knows how to get there. And they know you're going to be an extremely useful guide along the way. So I would use value pricing for projects, custom projects. I would also, um, you, you can also think about productized services, which are, are still services. You deliver them like a service and there are some, some unique aspects. There's always some unique aspect of the delivery because every client is different, but the sales, all of the marketing and sales of the service are product are like a product. There's a very clear deliverable or, or, or outcome. If the right kind of client buys this, these are the outcomes they can expect. And the scope productized service is a fixed scope service. You sell at a published price. So there's no, it, what it does is it makes it very easy for people who aren't great at sales or don't care to become great at sales, sell stuff. So for your audience, that might not be as, as big of a deal because you've got professional salespeople involved. And, and the downside of productized services is that you can leave money on the table and salespeople don't like to hear that. So, yeah. um, so productized service can be very interesting for lots of people, if they're a smaller organization and they don't have a dedicated sales team, uh, but also they can be extremely useful as a foot in the door with a new client. So it could be a, almost, I wouldn't, functions like a loss leader, but you don't have to lose money on it. So it'd be something like some upfront initial paid diagnostic or um, discovery. Uh, discovery could be, mm-hmm. you know, findings and recommendations presented as mm-hmm. a report to mm-hmm. senior leadership mm-hmm. and you know, it's customized to them. The report is customized to them, but certainly if you're attracting, if you've niched down on a particular kind of audience or you've got, there's a lot of similarity between your customers, they're good. there's going to be a lot of overlap. It's going to be a lot of boilerplate and, and it'll be custom, kind of customizing some basic materials. So it's not that much work, probably, you know, five to 20 hours over the course of two to six weeks. It's a very small scope. And once you deliver that sort of roadmap, they, the client, it's extremely common for the client to say, wow, this is amazing. Uh, could you help us execute this roadmap? And you, yeah. at that point, I would say something like, well, as I've probably said before, as you probably already know, I can do that. I'd be happy to do that, but I will probably be the most expensive option to do execution and focus on strategy. But if you'd like me to, I can give you a proposal, but I would, but, but this roadmap is portable. You could take it to someone much cheaper and probably get pretty good results. And they'll say, no, 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 just, you know, we would love to see a proposal. And, and I know plenty of service providers who close it, like a hundred percent of the deals they want, starting with a roadmap into a project. So they, they get the project work because project work is much higher revenue. It's, it's more work, but it's, uh, it can be very reliable revenue. And I love so uh, if, if the list, sorry to jump in, Jonathan, uh, just to emphasize, because you and I are probably a bit further ahead than some other lessons. I loved how you emphasized the word want to, you know, that was not lost on me, you know, in terms of they will close hundred percent of the deals they want. want, Yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about the three P model just for lessons around positioning, publishing and pricing. Mm -hmm. Now, why I love having your show, because you're going to ask these questions and I think I know some of your answers, but (laughs) listeners are not aware of you. So this is why it's so good to have you on. Just remember that in our world, it's very much they're selling products, not necessarily selling. So they're selling fertilizer, they're selling Mm -hmm. fuel, they're selling seed, they're selling agritech, although which is closer to your world, you know, a lot of SaaS products and online and spatial GIS stuff and Mm -hmm. crop yields and and irrigation systems and water use efficiency. Mm -hmm. Here's here's the thing. What's your response when people go, because, we we endorse exactly the same strategy of our clients in terms of give to get, you know, very Adam Grant, you know, serve to sell. Mm-hmm. And they and my clients go, first of all, they go, oh, I can't email my clients every day because, you know, I'll piss them off and they'll just be, you know, they'll, they'll just think we're spammy. The second question that I do want your answer is though, <laughs> when I say to clients, generosity is your best strategy in my world, because it is, because I give away an ebook, right? And I give away everything. Everything that I teach is in the ebook, but of course, only 5% read it, right? Um, and, uh, and if they can do it like you, then good, go knock yourselves out. But what would you say when someone says, yeah, but 
Jonathan or Sinjin, I can't give up my, my best stuff for free. And I don't want a Seth Godin answer here because we, kn- we know the answer in terms of what he <laughs> says. But what's Jonathan's answer? Yeah, I mean, I you can't give you, my stuff away for free. You know, so right. what, what mindset have they got there? Come on, give it to me. Right. So when you're, when you're writing an ebook or you're writing a daily mailing list, the best you can really do is give away best practices and general principles because you don't know the situation of the specific reader. So if, so they, it's, it can be for some people an instant light bulb moment and they know exactly what to do with this information to run with it and get great results. That's great. But it's a small percentage. Like you said, it's maybe 5%, maybe Mm -hmm. the other 95% or even if it's 80% or 70% get it in theory, but they cannot figure out how to apply it in practice in practice. Right. Right. So, yeah. So that is the piece where they need to, if they want, they already believe that you have the answer to the problem. You have art to, to their questions. You've articulated the problem better than they can. They, they believe that the answer is inside of your head and they're reading your free stuff and they just, and they just haven't been able to connect the dots. So what might occur to them? Maybe I should hire this person. So if you just, right. So if you're, if you're putting out not your best stuff and people aren't getting any light bulb moments, they're not getting any insights. They're not feeling like they're getting smarter. They're not feeling like, how would they know that those brilliant insights are in your head? You have to share them. You have to share your best stuff. It's the only thing you should share. Yeah. hundred percent. Hundred percent. I'm so glad you answered that way. And then Seth Seth Godin, who's, you know, so the God of marketing, the world's most read blog. And, (laughs) you know, I like. I think he's a very, very smart fella and, and a few listeners will know him. Um, his answer is, I think he did a YouTube video or a seminar on, on a conference that create like an artist. And he said, come from a mindset of abundance where basically if you're giving away your best stuff and then you're worried about you're not going to have any stuff left, then you haven't got much stuff. That's another good. Well, here's, here's a, a different way to think about that, but it's the yeah. same outcome. And I, I actually just ran a new workshop teaching people how to, or not even teaching people how to do a daily email list. It's more about getting out of their own way, getting over their fears and just doing it. Yeah, and a, like across the board, the experience is once people decide to create that much content, it magically appears. It, it's like magic because it's always been there. You just had no reason to notice it. So all of a sudden you have a reason to notice it. There's a publishing outlet for these, I call, I refer to them like fireflies. There's these fireflies all around you, these spark of an idea. They're everywhere, right? Like if you know what you're doing, you're good. Like, let's just do base assumption. These folks know what they're doing. They're good at their jobs. They understand their products. They understand the benefits of the products. Once you have, it's almost like opening up a hose, like the water's all there, but it's just not coming through, Yeah, you know? And it's like these fireflies, if you have a mechanism in place to capture them in the moment under a second, like, boom, Oh, that was a great idea. That's a great idea. Before you know it, you have more ideas than you can ever write? And you have gone deeper into the territory, whatever the knowledge don't, whatever the domain is, you've gone deeper than any of your competitors and you're pulling out gold. You're pulling out diamonds and being like, wow, you ever think of it like this? You know? So, I mean that that's so it's a similar result to Seth's answer, but it's like the process of sharing the stuff creates, it's like everything you share creates two more things to share. It's like, a, it's like a Pandora's box. It's just magic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think, you know, Seth talks around, uh, you know, when everyone complains about writer's box, so, you know, we, we have a marketing side of the business and we have a sales training side of the business and they go, we don't know what to write about Sinjin. You know, we can't, we can't do a monthly, email um, monthly. I, used, monthly, I, know you, I knew that would trigger you and they're like we, we don't know what to talk about and i said well do you think plumbers have plumbers block as, as steph says you know right and, and the way i get over it is like if you haven't got any ideas you haven't got any ideas and so you know where where and i love your metaphor there about fireflies is if you are an expert and you want to be that subject matter expert and pre-position yourself and pre-sell your prospects so you can have a faster sales cycle, a lower cost of service Jonathan's talking about, mm-hmm. you've got to get your shit out there. Yeah. Haven't you? 100%. You can't mm-hmm. hold it under a blanket because then no one knows how good you are. Right. And guess what people always love to read about? Themselves. 
So if you don't know what to write about, write about your clients, write about some problems. Yes. Start with the problems and, you know, name the problems. Say, you know what, maybe, maybe you don't even have an answer, but you've noticed this new problem that no one seems to be talking about. And maybe it's a change in the industry. Maybe it's some regulation that's coming. And you just want to, you just want to start a daily writing practice to make yourself the expert about that thing. And the place where you start a great place to start, if you don't have any ideas is with the problems the clients are experiencing, perhaps you could straight up interview them or they're still probably talking to them all the time. You know, what is the, what, what's the biggest challenge you're facing? What are you afraid of? Do you see any, any uh, changes on the horizon that could represent, uh, that could impact your industry? You know, yeah. maybe it's AI. I don't know. Like something, yeah, yeah, yeah. something crazy. Yeah. It will be in our world. It'll be things like um, declining yield, infestation, water use efficiency, uh, uh, winter grazing rule regulations here in New Zealand. What I liked about, and, and your man, Philip Moore, cause you're incredibly generous, John, uh, Jonathan is, that patterns of stupidity. Mm-hmm. So for me, I just wrote a blog because, again, you've you've inspired me over the years as I've, I've, I've read and followed you lots, as you know, and we've had conversations before, is, mm. you know, I see with sales training as an example is sales trainers teach you how to sell. And I say, actually, the problem with sales is selling. So the, and, and so I'm contrarian and saying, well, actually, what you need to do is just you need to support your buyer to make the most accurate and informed decision. Selling doesn't come into it. It's a buyer mindset, not a seller mindset. Right. So those patterns of stupidity are perfect because you're shifting the belief because our brains and our amygdalas do not spot things that are the same. They detect difference. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So for me, like the, the, the always be selling it, like selling in the, the gross, pushy used yeah, car kind of team. selling. Yeah. Uh, that to me, that just like is going to lead to buyer's remorse and it's not a long term. It's just not a long term. It's a short term. I got to make my numbers kind of thinking. And mm-hmm. sometimes there's cause for short term thinking, but you know, in the big picture, if this is a career or a, you know, a family business or, a, you know, a business that you're trying to make a going concern for generations, it's like you probably want to be making long game decisions about sales and probably most things, it, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like all self-help is basically the advice to think long-term, not short-term. Like that's everything, you know, yeah. washboard abs, billionaire, all that stuff. It's like think longer term. Mm-hmm. So if you think longer term and, and every converse in the conversation you're having with the potential client is not about closing the deal to make your end of the month numbers, but it's for a sale that you're going to make in three years. Yeah. I love that. And you're like, how am I going to help this person right now? And yeah. it might not be, it might be, you know, what, if you find out what the problem is, it's not, it's not necessarily true that you can solve it. They might say, ah, my spouse and I have been fighting. That's my biggest problem right now. And introduce them to your favorite marriage counselor or whatever. Like if you're just always helping, yeah, it's, it's a longer game and you need to put Cheerios in the bowl between now and that, that giant million dollar sale three years from now, mm. but people buy from people they like. And, you know, I, I mean the product and the service, it still needs to be good. It needs to be better than the competition or at least as good as the competition. But it, for me, I was never really comfortable with the selly kind of sales and like, re, you know, you know, like persuasion by, you know, Tversky and, uh, economy and it's like eh, i don't want to play these mental games and like mm. use sunk cost fallacy to try and enroll someone in the process and like they don't mm. want to, you know dragging the deal out so they don't want to mm. you know don't mm. want to feel like they wasted all that time and now have to restart with another supplier it's like yeah. all that stuff surely works. i know that stuff works but i just don't want to think like that what i'd rather do is like my my sort of business philosophy is to like help people you like get what they want and if you can do that at scale for free, like I do with a mailing list or a podcast or anyone does with a mailing list or a podcast, you're sort of selling to the entire market with like zero marginal cost and close, close to zero marginal cost. So right. I, that's just my approach. It's a very soft sell approach, but. 100%. I'm, I'm exactly the same philosophy, Jonathan, because, you know, we talk about serve to sell. And we say the quickest, fastest way to make more sales is to serve the best interest of your customer rather than your own. And that may, may, may take time. 
what you're saying is with that low marginal cost of delivery and production because we've got this wonderful thing called the internet. So for you, you've got two major I, – I talk in metaphors all the time, Jonathan, and you're big enough brain to understand this. I talk about the, like the three-legged stool. Sometimes I get greedy and I want a five-legged stool. <laughs> two of your legs are podcasts and daily emails, and they have been – just for listeners – how effective have those two channels been for you in that pre-market positioning so you then end up with a ready-to-buy buyer at the end of the line? Yeah, so you'll have to tell me how much this applies to your folks. But for someone who is running an expertise-based business, speaking and writing are non-negotiable. You have to be speaking and writing a lot. You're not going to end up being an authority. Like You're not going to be seen as, to me, an authority is a recognized expert. Like There are lots of experts at, I don't know, Fluid Dynamics, I don't know any of them, right? <laughs> they're not authority. Maybe there are some authorities in the space, but you can be an expert without being recognized for it in the by a broader audience. Uh, so you're not really an authority, but you could be building toward that, yeah. you know, author, the person who wrote the book on fluid dynamics for yes. irrigation or whatever. Yes. And in 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 that kind of a business model, you have to be writing and speaking all the time. And for me. Back when I was doing sort of big ticket consulting in the mobile space, that looked like writing a book every year or two and speaking at conferences. And that worked great. It got me a small number of whale clients every year. So I'd have two or three or four or five at the most new clients a year. And they were six figure deals. And it was just me, no expenses working out of my basement, in my pajamas. So, you know, that was very highly profitable. And that was the model. It's an author, speaker, consultant. You know, it's like very common, very Alan Weissy. And when I moved into business coaching in 2016, I started to transition into business coaching. It's a little bit different model, but I still, I still needed to be recognized as the go-to person for someone for something. And rather than flying around to speak to com- at, at conferences, uh, and rather than writing books. Uh, it was a little bit of a different kind of market. They were much easier to reach online. I didn't, you know, it wasn't like, like high level executives that would occasionally fly to one or two conferences a year and were never online. My folks were online all the time and Mm -hmm. the the best bang for the buck for me became the one, two punch of a mailing list, which crystallized my ideas into just diamond hardness, like just created a massive body of work Mm -hmm. in a remarkably short period of time. And then the podcasting, which builds a huge amount of trust with the kind of people who click with your personality. And it repels people who don't click with your personality. And just for the listeners to jump in, Jonathan's made a really good point here around positioning. Positioning is just as much, almost its first job is to repel the wrong customers as it is to attract the right ones. Correct, Mm -hmm. Jonathan? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it has that that feature. And so you have to be comfortable with, with, you you can't have a scarcity mindset. Yeah, you feels like, feels like, well, why would I say anything that would drive anyone away? And it's like, well, because they wouldn't be a good fit for you as a client. Yeah. And yeah. because you, and because they're not your ideal client, because you try and please everyone, you'll please no one. There is a specific part of the audience or so a specific, because again, everyone gets that scarcity principle. Oh no, I've got to appeal to all farmers. It's like, no, there, well, there's what we call intelligentsia farmers or academic farmers or what I call Jonathan alpha farmers. They're the ones that others recognize and follow and they're the ones that run the discussion groups and they write letters to the editor and they run water catchment groups and all the kind of you know my world and you know you you know we talk about word of witch mouths not word of mouth you know like interesting kind of context yeah what's funny that it matters who whose mouth you know what i mean it's like you don't want just like none of us none of us is in a a mass market business it it almost doesn't exist anymore no you know, so like the, the niches and the filter bubbles and all of the little, so like, I think the fear is that of turning away, you know, a client, even though they've got red flags flying off them in every direction Yes, comes from, but this might be my last lead. I don't know where I'm going to get the mortgage. I don't know how I'm going to pay the mortgage. Uh, yeah. I need, I needed to make payroll. And you just like, when you're on that hand to mouth hamster wheel, the idea of worrying about opportunity costs is pretty far down the priority list, but it's real. It is real. And because if you're, if you're doing painful, tedious, tooth pulling work for a client that is a bad fit for you. Life's pretty bad. 
that your life is bad and you're not going to have the time or energy to find the amazing clients that would like uh, that that would put you in your genius zone doing the stuff that you love doing. 100%. And again, I just want to say, sorry to interrupt so much, but I think there's so many valid points you're making here and I want to make sure it lands for the listeners is we talk about the correlation between time and energy. But actually, anything that's robbing you of energy will rob you of the ability to, to get into your genius zone. So, you know, time and energy management, everyone goes, oh, I need to work time management. I need to get my reps being better on their core cycles and their territory management. I said, the first thing you need to work on is your reps energy because they don't have enough energy. And the problem is, you know, I wrote a, um, a fairly contrarian blog. Again, you'll be very proud of me, Jonathan, because I know you're such a huge follower and you read every single thing I write. Not <laughs> is I wrote why you should fire some of your farming clients. Oh, yeah. And I got a really good response to it because obviously it was contrarian, it was contradictory, it was counterintuitive. And like you say, it clicks because people go, it's not clickbait. It's just like I'm saying things that people actually sometimes haven't got the balls to say. And what Jonathan's saying, because he's way more successful than me, and look at the guy in terms of the content he's creating and the follow he's created by the consistency of positioning, publishing, and then pricing, which we'll get into again is not every client is worth you. And if you haven't got a predictable, reliable way of generating leads, then your confidence and conviction of your sales conversations is going to be very, very low. Mm-hmm. And to, um, um, you know, uh, uh, read Hol- uh, not Holden's, but, you know, uh, Jim Camp, you know, needy, needy yeah. in negotiation. So I love Jonathan, Blair. Sorry. Blair, calls yeah, it the, Blair calls it the stench of desperation, which I love. The stench of desperation. Yeah, no, it's awesome. And him and Shannon do grand, grand jobs. Now, Jonathan, I want to get back to um, the sales side. Mm-hmm. The thing that you were talking about with all the sort of the tricks and the nuances and the heuristics, and maybe you can see a couple of the books. And- yeah, I recognize a lot of spines up there. Yeah, 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 you do, you do. So for me um, – I'm massive on selling like a human being <laughs> and like human-based selling. And I sure. think you're the same thing. I'm very soft sell, not hard sell. If this is, you know, yeah, we signal bar safety, you know, if if we get that far and if we decide to work together and all those kind of things. I think the biggest thing that gives you away in a sales conversation, I mean, you are you have this very quiet, modest, humble confidence because you've got your competencies dialed in. Some of our guys that are growing, guys and girls that are growing or new to sales rep or territory management role or a national sales manager role. The key here, I think, with sales is sell like a human, sell human to human, human-centered selling, and also show your, your the, the genuine intent to serve. Now, you're already doing that by the publishing and the positioning that you're creating. I mean, your publishing actually creates your positioning. So we're not arguing about sequential here. Right. Which one? They all work together. Correct. They all work together because basically they all interdependent as some sort of ecosystem. But, you know, the intent, people for me give themselves away by the questions they ask. That's just works for the seller and for the buyer. So when the buyer asks me a question, it's a buyer signal or it's not like, you know, when they start getting into risk and they're talking about detail, I know that they're serious. Right. But ultimately as a seller you need to sell like a human being i mean what's your thoughts on that because you know you've got a big brain on this we just we only touched on that lightly so that's forgive me that's why i pedaled back yeah yeah so i i know i I know what you're getting at so the if you don't have a genuine posture of service it will bleed through into your language in because you will you will You'll be thinking in a self-centered, self-centric kind of way, and you're going to be trying to do things that move the deal forward regardless of whether or not it's in the best interest of the person across from you. So the easiest way in, in that also, I find that at least with my people who are not, who are sort of allergic to sales, the idea of doing sales, they, it gives them butterflies, they get stage fright, they get panicky, um, you know, sweaty palms, the whole thing, like a fight or flight reaction. They feel gross. They feel like they're being a trickster trying to, trying to convince someone of something Mm -hmm. just never do it. Like it, if I feel myself getting butterflies, it's, it's like, why? I mean, that hasn't happened to me in a long time. It's like, it's like, why would you be nervous? There's nothing, there's nothing at stake. Like you're here to help them and either you can or you can't. So and, and if there's a big pro- potential big project on the table, the only time people get nervous about that is when they need the money, right? Which we can't, we're sort of glossing over. Like we're giving people advice to like play the long game 
and don't be yeah. desperate. Don't need the money and then just help the other person for free at scale. It's like, well, how do I eat? Right. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So let's do that. Cause yeah. they're going, we've got to make quota. My salesman is going to be right in my ass saying mm-hmm. I made target. And he's just literally, it's the 14th guys. And, um, you know, you know, we need bloody targets. We're bleeding here. Get out and see some farmers drive up some driveways. Mm-hmm. So, there's two levels to that. One is that I do believe that there are leading indicators that can reliably produce downstream results. So it could be that the sales manager who's riding their ass to get, you know, their, their reps in, you know, get out there. How many people did you talk to today? It could be that that's a reliable indicator of, you know, something that's going to happen downstream, but it's probably, probably, maybe I'm wrong. It's probably, short-term thinking. It sounds like short-term thinking because they're measuring something that is very Mm short-term. They're not, you know, I don't know what it is because I don't run sales teams, but it would be really interesting if there was a different metric, perhaps tougher to measure, but, but more predictive of long-term strategic outcomes. Like how many people did you help today? Instead Mm -hmm. of how many people did you knock on their door? How many people did you interrupt today? Mm -hmm. So if the goal is how many people did you help today that, and and that was, and and how would you measure that? It would completely change the thinking of the sales reps, Mm -hmm. right? Because the, the, how many people did you talk to today doesn't say anything about the content of the conversation, which is kind of important. Don't you think? The yeah, content of the conversation, right? I mean, the com- as Blair insists, the conversation's made. That's where the sales made. It's not made in the presentation or the proposal. That short-termism selling is an affliction. But you know, there are the commercial realities. Hey, we've got stretch target. We are uh, for here. You know, we're in harvest, or people are drilling seed, sure, or pre-dressing, sure. whatever doing. And they've got to really make some sales. So I'm really glad, Jonathan, that you've challenged yourself there because people might kind of pass this over and go, oh, that's great. Well, he's sitting in Connecticut and he's like, yeah, he's cool. Pie in the sky. You know, pie in the sky and this guy's like, you know. But the, the, here's the thing, listeners. You will get lead flow, which gets deal flow when you commit to a cadence of content. Correct, Jonathan? I I would say yes. I mean, I I see it happen over and over in the service space for sure. And it works the best, most effectively, and the fastest with people who genuinely care about the getting the people they like what they want. Like if if I genuinely show up every day, as and, you do in the inbox, yeah, yes. Yeah, so I have a daily habit that reminds me. Like I said in the email, I sit in front of the email. One of my one of my sort of little rules for myself or guidelines is never start with the word I. Never start an email with the word I. It's very tempting to. Because I'm thinking about something that happened to me that day that I'm going to write about and I'm going to, I'm going to put it through this lens of ditching hourly billing or some positioning or pricing or something. I'm going to put it through the lens. So it's usually. I've enjoyed your, exter- I've enjoyed your exterminator emails, Jonathan. Yeah, squirrels. Issues. Right. Squirrels. Yes. So, so the, the, the idea is if I can't come up with a way to open the email with something that will be likely of interest to my target reader, it's probably not going to be that great of any, you know, like I haven't got the idea yet. So if I can't summarize it with a, you know, a hook kind of, it's kind of like yeah. a heck yeah headline or saying like, you know, yeah, it's hard to think one right on the spot, but, but the idea is it should be something that's like, doesn't it make you crazy when, Yada, yada, yada. Doesn't it make you crazy when a service provider gives you a bill of materials and says, this is how much it's going to be, but doesn't tell you if it's going to accomplish anything that you want, yeah, which is what the squirrel is guarantee about. the outcome, which is what we want. Yeah. And, you know, I think what we're saying here as well is that effective marketing, which is because we're skirting between sales and marketing and lead gen, mm-hmm. is when sales teams, you know how that sales teams have that very uneasy and very high tension relationship between marketing teams. So this is how the conversation goes. Marketing team, you're you're the culinary in department and you spend all the money while we make the money. You're a cost center and we're a profit center. So we have cat and mouse and never the two shall meet. Oh, you just, and, um, what's yeah, that? You just, okay, keep going, but you just yeah. like so stepped then, on a button. So what, yeah, no, no, I've stepped on a landmine here because <laughs> I've written that. This is great while we're having the chat is, so the sales team, I believe are supported, but I believe firmly that a marketing team 
serves the sales team and marketing is a function of sales because for me and please challenge me on this effective marketing nurtures the leads so the sales team don't have to cold call their farming prospects because the marketing is effectively robert collier style connected with the conversation that that specific customer is having in their own his or own head so marketing does the job of Starting to generate leads because marketing team, you know, sales team go, well, all those, all those leads you got from that lead magnet or the Facebook are shit, they're shit house and they're no good and they're unqualified. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend any more time. I'm going to go and create my own leads. What's your views on that? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you laid it out. So a couple of things, the, the, the hot button that you stepped on is that, <laughs> that I step on plenty of them <laughs> all day long. I don't I almost don't. I'm going to bookmark. I'm going to answer this briefly, but then we're going to loop back to it because we haven't touched on the commodity thing yet, which is actually the hardest question here. So the marketing and innovation are the only two value creation parts of a business. If you're doing a good job, marketing and innovation, everything else is the cost. You wouldn't even need a sales team, Right. The sales team is. Are you a- talking about? Sorry, because I just um, there was a lovely big rubbish truck outside making a lot of noise. <sighs> are you saying there was Peter Drucker in terms of? I hundred percent sales superfluous. I was really trying to do lip syncing there, Jonathan. Hundred percent, hundred percent agree with Drucker's uh, like idea there, because innovation and marketing is what. So he is the other quote that he has that is closely related to this that I did not understand for years was, you know, what's the purpose of a business? Most people would say to make a profit for the owner or the the shareholders. And his answer was to create a customer. And I was like, what? I didn't even get that. Seems so basic. It it didn't make, no, it literally didn't make sense to me. I'm like, what do you mean create a customer? Like have a baby or like what, like what are you even (laughs) talking about? And and I did not understand it until we went to Disney World the first time with my then five-year-old son. And there's a TV show called Phineas and Ferb that he was obsessed with at the time. Hilarious show and live music, really good, good band music. And, and he was trembling with excitement, just like <laughs> tears on his face <laughs> when excited. we, when we walked up to the sort of photo op with some dude dressed up like Phineas. And I was like, that's what Drucker meant. Yes. Disney created this Disney created mm-hmm. out of nothing created this desire in my son to meet someone dressed up like Phineas. And we paid thousands of dollars for that. (laughs) Right. For that one moment, for that one moment, that TV show is an example of marketing for the park. You could think of, you know, I don't know what Disney's strategy is, but all of their movies. And I think now with Disney plus, it's more of a, a revenue generation uh, center, but pre previous to that, you could easily imagine Disney making all of their money at the parks, selling sugar water at a thousand percent markup <laughs> and giving the movies away for free so that kids fell in love with the stories and the characters and wanted to dress up like them and buy Halloween costumes. And that is creating a customer. Yeah. Did, did so- a salesperson contact me about my Disney trip? No. No, no. So to me, I, I just firmly believe I, that quote from Drucker, it took me years to understand yeah. when I saw that, then I was like, wow, that's the pinnacle. And then the two functions that lead to that are innovation and marketing, nothing else. Everything else is a cost. So good, Jonathan, because I want to get to the commodity and I want to respect your time. Okay. Uh, what I love what Jonathan's done there, he's talked about Disney the, the TV shows and the films sell the park. So they are essentially committing to their own publishing and positioning to then create the pricing and the thousands of dollars that your lovely son you got because he had tears. And I, I know I know that look on children when they're just absolutely trembling with uh, just just excitement. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful yeah, raw thing. joy, so, memory created, money uh, well spent. Like, Money well spent, exactly. Um, 100%. Those moments matter very, very much. Um, Jonathan, let's move to the commodity space and finish mm. there. Yep. This is a tough one in ag because everyone's going, yeah, this guy's a good dude. He's ideological. It's not relevant to me in my sector in rural because I've got some hard-ass farmers who give me a lot of, a lot of shit around fert prices and fuel and feed and seed. Um, 
what would you say to them in terms of where they believe they're selling commodity product? Uh, well, first, if they believe that's what they're selling, then that is what they're selling. But I think it goes beyond the sales team. I think it goes all the way to the top of the business strategy. And the the owner or whoever's in charge of the business, let's just say the owner of the business, needs to decide what kind of business it's going to be. And maybe right now you sell feed and fuel and whatnot. And, and maybe... You know, I mean, it's been 20 years now, the sort of service economy concept, like let's tack some services on top and differentiate ourselves like that. I mean, that's like already, that's been old news for decades, mm. you know, read the experience economy by Joe Pine for more on that. Yeah, but, so but that this goes all the way to the top. It's like, what is the objective of the owner for the business? And then what is the strategy that is going to help us achieve that outcome? And a couple of things we've talked about so far really play into this, which are if you don't have any profits, you probably are investing precious little money in the two, the only two value creation areas of your business, which are innovation and marketing. If you are not, if you are playing it too close to the bone and you're trying to just barely make payroll every month by whipping your sales team to be Mm -hmm. banging on doors this is stench of desperation to me. Mm. And if you can't get some profits worked in there somehow, firing your bottom performing clients, letting go of some product line that you're barely breaking even on something, cut something, do something to get enough profit that you can uh, drill it back into the business in innovation and marketing and start to ask yourself, when was, when was the last time I innovated business? Like, I'm talking to the business owner now. When was the last time you innovated or are you just like meeting with reps from your manufacturers and like trying to, trying to get them down on price? And yeah, is that, that's not innovation. Honestly, some of the margins you, you will water eyes. Some of our big retailers, I hear that they only working on a two or 3% margin on crop science, chemicals, seed feed, and you're going, or Waratahs and things. And you go, how can you, and this is a point listeners, how can you then innovate and differentiate and create R&D? But it's, it's systemic from the top. Jonathan's yes. laid a very big challenge to business owners, rural business owners here. You might be more family-owned business rather than the big corporates. Decide what business you want to be. If you want to be a commodity business, you will become that belief. And mm-hmm. you will you adopt that mindset, and then that will carry on to your conversations. And I don't think it's going to get you far because you'll be on a downward spiral of diminishing returns. I mean, again, it's like – if you don't change the crop in the paddock, using a rural example here, the yield is going to go down because you're not changing the soil structure and your your production, your yield will go down because you're planting the same crop on the same soil year after year and the yield goes down. So, Jonathan, sorry, please continue. Yeah, diminishing returns. So, the, the biggest companies in the world by revenue, Google, Apple, Facebook, Samsung, uh, Volkswagen's up there, they all spend billions with a B tens of billions of dollars every year on innovation and marketing. And they don't do that because they can, because now they're big companies. They are now big companies because they've been doing that. It's the other way around. If you're never innovating, what are you even doing? Why do you even have a business that has a 2% margin? What's the point? Get a job. (laughs) Just go work for someone. Well, the thing is, you know, we're seeing, um, without naming names and protecting the innocent and the anonymous, is we're seeing retailers beat up and kind of devalue the proprietary or the IP nature of those products or services. And then they're on selling them for 2 3%. And then there's a bit of rebate, um, hokey pokey, uh, you know, smoke and mirror kind of bullshit plays going on where they're not only uh, extracting less cost of goods but they're also then asking for a rebate when they sell a certain amount or then they have to go and give it back so it's very rife this commodity mindset but it's also rife from the farmer because a farmer doesn't see differentiation and as we know cost is an objection in the absence of value right exactly if they saw the value they wouldn't be objecting to the cost and this is why they will buy john deere tractors at a premium of 15 to 20 percent because they want the green and gold because Jeffrey Moore, you know, conspicuous fitness signals, you know, um, and and his beautiful book, they want to they want to signal that actually, 
you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a really successful farmer, so I can afford, you know, a six or seven or eight, nine series John Deere, as opposed to buying one of the other color tractors. Yeah, I mean, the way you're describing that, they're, they're, the purchase is a luxury status symbol purchase, but it could also be that they're telling themselves a story or they rationalize that purchase by saying that this one will last longer, so it's actually cheaper in the long run. There, yeah, those yeah, two things could be at play depreciation, um, post-product um, guarantees and all the rest of it. So, Jonathan, I think um, respectful of your time, really, really appreciate it so much. I think we might have another chat in another another few months or years or whenever it does, but uh, I'm sure that time will come around very, very quickly. No, <laughs> you are and we are. Jonathan, um, I have one last question, which I always ask all my guests. Mm-hmm. I'm not Jay Shetty here, where he always has one question. I know a lot of podcast hosts do this. Yeah. If you had one piece, knowing the audience that's listening to this now, you've got a bit of an understanding of them now, what would be your one piece of advice to them and why? And you can answer that any way you want. So I'm torn. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a different one then. So normally I would say, I already said it, so I'm not going to use it up on this, yeah, but nor- help people you like get what they want. If, <laughs> That will save you from everything. It'll save you from everything. And it doesn't just apply to business. The, the, but since we're talking about commodity, we're sort of finishing on commodity. Sure. You need to be meaningfully different from your competitors. Not different in a way that you know you're better than Bob down the street because Bob's a jerk but, or whatever. Or Bob buys the yellow bag instead of the blue bag, so I'm better or whatever. Whatever it is. You need to be different in a way that's meaningful to the people you want to help, the people you like, the people you want to serve. And if you are meaningfully different to them, then you, your business, I don't know about your feed, but your business won't be viewed as a commodity. You'll be meaningfully different than the next one. So they'll have a story to tell themselves in their head when they decide to pay a premium for you when they could get the air quotes exact same thing from Bob. But no, Bob Bob is more expensive in the long run because he's more of a hassle is more, is more difficult to deal with. I'd rather pay a premium to get white glove service or get, or so the owner picks up the phone or all of these peace of mind types of things or status things, just like the John Deere, you know, you be the status one, be the luxury one, the one that only the really successful farmers can afford and then be, make it visible somehow that they've been buying from you you know, like the Apple, the, the white headphone cords when everybody else had black headphone cords with the iPod. So then you couldn't see the iPod because it was in everybody's pocket, but you knew they were cool. That cool person has an iPod because they got the white headphones. Yeah. So, so be meaningfully different from everybody else. Stand out from the crowd. If you don't do that, then you are a commodity. You're just and interchangeable. And that comes back 100%, Jonathan. That comes back to... Most almost majority of pricing problems are correlated back to positioning problems, and this is what Jonathan's leaving me as gift as a gift listeners is that if you're not meaningfully different, you don't have a profit to reinvest in the business to innovate and continue that sustainable competitive advantage where you can continue to innovate and continue to market where you got deal flow and lead flow because you've actually got the profit to invest back in the business to build that moat. So, yeah. Jonathan, I think it's a really good place to end there. Super grateful for you to coming on the show. I know you're very, um, very much in demand, very well regarded, very busy. I've learned so much from you remotely here from New Zealand. So, I very much appreciate your generosity, not just on the show, but all the emails you send, some of the courses we've done together and the programs. Jonathan, where do people reach out to? get hold of you if they want to find out more about you where, where it's the best place to send them sure well thanks for all that i don't know if i'm gonna fit my head out the door on the way <laughs> <laughs> to lunch but uh yeah just go to jonathanstark.com and there are a bunch of sort of helpful links for people who are first-time visitors to the site right at the top of the homepage. so you can look at that and see if there's anything that might suit you Awesome. The very soft sell there. Very, I love that, Jonathan. He's a real service guy, this guy. He really is. So generosity is definitely your best strategy. And I've, I've learned a hell of a lot from you, Jonathan. So I appreciate it. And uh, even, you know, uh, many, many thousands of miles away or kilometers in our case. So also <laughs> we'll put in the show notes um, the business authority. And I think, mm-hmm. Jonathan, if you, you've got to listen to this really carefully because he's very succinct and very articulate, unlike me. Listen to the way he emphasizes some of the words like he talked about being a recognized authority, which is through your publishing. 
and you're speaking, you're writing, it's a non-negotiable. Now, he has a wonderful podcast called The Business Authority with his co-host, Rochelle Moulton. That is another one of my go-to podcasts. You've got Ditching Hourly as a podcast as well. But yeah, if any of you are out there wondering, I can't commit to content and I can't give away my best stuff and I'm selling a commodity product, I think we've gone a little way to answering some of those objections. So Jonathan, super grateful. Thank you for for being on the show. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey you, hope you enjoyed that episode and you learned lots from it. It takes a wee bit of work to get these wonderful guests onto the show who share their knowledge with you freely and generously. So it kind of makes sense for me to ask you a tiny, tiny small favor in return and that is to ask you to rate follow, subscribe, or share this podcast whenever you get time with friends, family members, colleagues, neighbors, or anyone in your network you think might benefit from it. The reason for my request here is a simple one, and it's because I'm on a mission. And that mission is to elevate and improve the world's perception of rural sales reps by sharing more effective sales and marketing strategies so we get you and them the results and respect that you all deserve. The thing is, I can only do that when you can help me get this podcast out to a bigger audience. And that's the reason, the whole reason I created this podcast in the first place, which is to help you guys. So as you know, I've got nothing to sell you here. I don't include any of those annoying ads that affect your listening and learning experience. So I just want to thank you for sharing the show. And more importantly, thank you for investing your time with me. Appreciate it and appreciate you.